Since the beginning of time, human beings have seen the need to measure things. We set ourselves targets. We give ourselves boundaries. We measure performance, from the number of calories we can healthily consume in a day to the number of cars needed on the M25 to constitute a traffic jam, to the worldwide measurement of our economy (GDP). These man-made measurements are known as indicators. There are millions and millions and millions of them out there. I'm Dr. Simon Bell from the Open University and Bayswater Institute, and I'm here to investigate how we use indicators within the European Union. Who decides how we measure things, and what are the implications for every one of us? All of us, all of us, use indicators every day of our lives. Many of them have to do with the negative impacts, the pollution, the accidents. Policy does tend to listen more to the economic indicators than the environmental indicators. After several days losing hundreds of millions of pounds a day, the airline industry was desperate to get flying again. They had to invent a new rule. Policy should not be totally driven by indicators. They're there as a support tool. Let's start at the beginning. What are indicators? I met up with Steve Morse, who's an expert on indicators from the University of Surrey, to find out more. Indicators are a way of trying to represent something complex in something simple. So, a blue sky is an indicator of a nice day. So, they are just basically tools. And why do we use indicators? I mean, what's the point? Because we live in a complex world. We need to, on a day-by-day basis, make sense of the complexity in which we live. And so all of us, all of us, use indicators every day of our lives. Can you give us a nice example of an indicator in use? A classic example is a gross domestic product (GDP). GDP was developed some years ago. It was essentially following the crash in the 1930s and the recession, and people realised that they didn't have enough information about how economies work, really. So you had the recession happening. People didn't know where it came from, or what was happening, how to manage it, how to tell whether it could happen again, and so a whole set of what's called national accounts came into play. And gross domestic product is just one of those indicators that were developed at that time. It's an economic indicator. It measures the flow of money within an economy. And high GDP is good. Low GDP is bad. So an indicator is a measurement to help us to simplify and understand our complex world. But an indicator like GDP is in fact quite complicated. It's a composite indicator, a measurement pulling together a whole basketful of other measurements, which together help us define the state of our economies. Now, in this modern age, we've developed so many indicators that we're having to ask ourselves: What exactly are we measuring? For example, is GDP the only or the best way to measure a country's wealth? Here's Stephen Morse again. One of the classic criticisms of GDP as an indicator is that it is relatively simplistic in terms of its message, and therefore you can get politicians managing economies in terms of GDP, in terms of maximising wealth, without really thinking through other things such as quality of life, which is more than just wealth, environmental quality, which is more than just wealth, and the whole beyond GDP debate. Which is now in vogue in Europe, is about trying to get us to value things beyond simple economic measures. So there's an interesting point here, isn't there, between an indicator and truth? 
Because a lot of people would say, the indicator says this, and therefore we must do this. It's not as simple as that, is it? Yes, because who's truth? Your truth is not necessarily my truth. Truth is a relative term. So indicators are also relative devices. So that's a really important point, isn't it, actually, that indicators can be manipulated depending upon your point of view, and if you have the power to adjust it or to maybe say, well, let's not use that indicator, let's use this indicator. Have you got any examples of that? Probably the classic example in recent times is the creation of the Environmental Sustainability Index. ESI was created by the World Economic Forum, and they basically paid some universities in the States to develop the ESI. So they chose to put certain things in it. So they put in, for example, things like expenditure on science. A lot of things which developed countries do very well on. So the ESI ended up showing that the most sustainable countries, Europe, the United States... And have a guess, the countries with the lowest values of the ESI were Africa, Asia, and so on, because the ESI was very much linked to expenditure on things. Now, this was heavily criticised by a whole range of groups who said that this is massively unfair, because what you've done is created an index that biases in favour of the developed world and against the relatively less developed world. And what Greenpeace and others did was say, well, OK, we can calculate another version of the ESI, which is based upon pollution of water, pollution of air, and we can prioritise those issues. And lo and behold, Europe and North America comes out bottom. So this is a classic example of how you can, through careful choice of what you include in an index, you can pretty much show what you like. We've almost got a situation then of indicator wars where different pressure groups will produce their own indicators and they'll bombard the public and policymakers with their own indicators depending on what their prejudice is. Yes. The problem is that the way in which indicators can be presented can give a semblance of being very objective because they're often numerical They're often derived through fairly complicated methodologies with fairly complex manipulations of variables of data. So you can create an image of an indicator being very hard, very scientific, very objective. And most people would accept that. Most people would think if the experts say this is the indicator we should be using, that's what we should be using. But the reality, I'm afraid, is different. So, we've seen how indicators can affect decision-making and perceptions, and can be used and manipulated to back up your cause. But who produces these indicators and what's their mindset? Dr Ian Perry works for the Research Directorate in the European Commission. He's interested in how indicators are produced and used by EU policymakers. The Commission, since the late 1980s, has funded a considerable amount of research on indicators and official statistics and some of the most important new indicators that have come into use over the last 20 years have been derived from something which was originally a research project. OK, there's a whole industry researching and producing indicators for use within the EU and around the world. From EU-funded research programmes to agencies like Eurostat, indicators are being churned out And, according to Ian Perry, there's a vast appetite for them. We live in a world where there is ever more demand for good indicators by politicians, policymakers, and both the general and what you might call the specialised public. The production of indicators is very dependent on the availability of good statistics, and good statistics cost money. 
they need to be produced using good methodologies. What would you say are the main benefits of a, a well-organised indicator world where we have lots of indicators to, which have been gathered and are available for policymakers? Well, hopefully, better evidence-based policy. Indicators need to be produced fairly quickly. They need to have a certain accuracy. We, of course, in the European level, need them to be comparable between the different countries. They need to be disaggregated down to useful levels, like you might need regional information, or you might need per industry. You might want to break down by age groups or gender. And if you don't have a fairly systematic system, you cannot guarantee that the good things will be produced. So, I mean, if we really cut it short, good policy at a European level is to some extent dependent upon good indicator collection and use. Yes, I would say that's the case. It's to some extent, but policy should not be totally driven by indicators. They're there as a support tool. So, every day we're developing thousands, if not millions, of indicators to measure our progress or to support European policymaking. But do all people need the same kind of information to make good policy decisions? Let's look at how some indicators are actually used within the EU member states. First up, a core member of the EU, Denmark. What role do transport indicators play within that country? They play several roles, from everyday measurements of the conditions on the road network to more long-term issues like where will the transport system be 30 or 50 years from now in terms of environmental performance, economics and a lot of other issues. Henrik Gudmundsson from the Technical University of Denmark works in transport research and comes across indicators every day. Many of them have to do with the negative impacts of transport, the pollution, the accidents, all the things that we don't like about transport. It's very important to collect that kind of information and see whether we are heading in the right direction or in the wrong direction. To many people, the most important thing is how much time they have to waste on transport. So things like delays, punctuality are very critical indicators for trains and buses, but also delays on the motorway network. Almost everyone in the transport sector would consider safety as one of the prime concerns, and it's an area where there are many good indicators. And the most important one is your life or the number of fatalities, people killed and hurt in transport. That's one that generates the most interest of all indicators that exist. Okay, so do any of these indicators have any influence on policy in Denmark? Are the politicians sensitive to the indicators? Henrik Goodmanson again. Some would say they're not sensitive enough because politicians have decided that we would get rid of as many of those accidents as possible. We have targets for that, and progress have not been as quick as was expected, which means that the people actually holding politicians accountable for that. So there is a committee in Parliament whose sole job is to follow traffic safety issues and to respond if the safety indicators tell us that we are not moving in the right direction or not. But I think it's a very big benefit for the public debate about transport that, that there are indicators available. If we didn't have indicators that people could trust all the time, we would have to struggle about what's the truth, what's up and what's down, what's fast and what's slow. I think thanks to indicators, we have a better informed debate on what we really want. If the politicians have promised that we should reduce the number of accidents with, say, 20%, and they do not deliver, we have a possibility to have a public debate. Hmm. This sounds very grounded and reasonable. 
But how are indicators experienced in places further from the EU centre? For example, a small member state like Malta. Liz Conrad's from the University of Malta and has carried out research into how the country uses environmental indicators. Our general conclusions were that there isn't an awful lot of use of indicators. Um, there have been several initiatives to develop indicators, which unfortunately don't seem to have much influence in terms of policy. They tend to be completed, data is gathered for a number of years, and then it all dies out. So I don't think in the case of Malta that there is that much use of indicators. That was the one conclusion that stood out. So... Maltese policymakers aren't taking much notice of the indicators they have at hand. But what about when there's an EU directive that Malta's supposed to meet, say, for example, in terms of sustainability? They have to take notice of these indicators, don't they? Liz Conrad again. Policy does tend to listen more to the economic indicators than the environmental indicators. The environmental indicators are monitored with much less regularity than the economic indicators, and I do suspect that they have much less influence as well. The environmental indicators are used more than anything else to show compliance or lack of compliance with EU standards, with regulations, but they're not really used for any adaptive management purposes to, to influence policy. There's quite a lot of criticism as well from policymakers about the resources that go into measuring these indicators because there is a feeling that Malta being a small island state, it's a different context. And the European indicators don't necessarily have the same utility for Malta as they do within the European mainland. There is a feeling that they are wasting a lot of resources trying to fit our national data into the European frameworks when they really don't kind of help much in terms of, of management. So, not all indicators are good for all people, and economics tend to rule in the indicator business. In short, the use of indicators is not problem or value-free. Let's think how indicators have been used or even misused in recent history. Who can forget the problems caused by the volcanic eruption in Iceland? As Europe was shrouded in a cloud of ash, all flights were grounded for days. It's been known since near-fatal incidents with jumbo jets in the 1980s, but if you fly a jet aircraft through a volcanic ash cloud and the ash gets into the engine, you can lose your engines. Dave Rothery is a volcanologist here at the Open University. So the rule agreed in the 1980s was that if you know there's volcanic ash present, you should not fly through it. So the indicator was simply, if there's volcanic ash present, do not fly through it. What happened with Eyjafjallajökull was the wind was blowing the ash over Europe at such a height that if you wanted to take off from Europe, you'd have to pass through the ash. If you wanted to land in Europe, you'd have to descend through the ash. And because the rule was that if there's ash present, you mustn't fly, then no flights were allowed. So we lost six days of flying because of this. Now, volcanologists had been warning of a possible ash eruption from Iceland for decades. The airline industry pretty much had its head in the sand. The engine manufacturers had declined to declare what the safe tolerance for ash was. And after several days losing hundreds of millions of pounds a day, the airline industry was pretty frantic and desperate to get flying again. They had to invent a new rule. A lot of this, of course, was actually driven by economic factors. That was what caused these changes to happen. Hazel Reimer is an environmental geophysicist at the OU. 
as the economic impact became more significant, people began to look at what really was likely to be going on in, in terms of the ash. They did a few test flights and they did some experiments in labs. But at the end of it, people came out and agreed that two milligrams of ash per cubic metre was a safe amount of ash to fly through. And that was agreed as the tolerance limit. Now, it took six days to come up with this. So therefore, it immediately became safe to fly through the ash cloud. So, in the case of the ash cloud, a combination of economic and probably political pressure meant that the indicator that judged safe flying was changed very, very quickly. Hazel Reimer again. You can't rush science. You can't rush the new modelling. You can collect more data, but that doesn't necessarily make it good data. And what you do with it is critically important. And developing a more realistic model is not usually done quickly overnight. I think there was a lot of frustration within the the volcanological and the wider community that it wasn't a surprise that an Icelandic volcano went off. It wasn't a surprise that there was ash up there. It took this economic crisis for there to be any recognition that these models were required and and for some resource then to be thrown at the problem. It was rather little and extraordinarily late. Hmm. We get a picture that indicators can be very fluid. We can see from the ash cloud experience that indicators can be changed for convenience in times of strife and of the key point that indicators are not necessarily true or right. What lessons can we learn from our study of indicators? Well, firstly, it seems that we need to get away from ideas that indicators are absolute or true, but rather they are the best we have. We should see them as guides to the way we think, not something to ignore, but not something to rely on completely either. Secondly, they need to be questioned and argued over. Indicator supply and demand often don't seem to come together. So we need people to be wise to indicators, where citizens feel able to question the indicators and argue the toss for changes. The Point Project is basically about indicators, but it's about how indicators are used in policy and if it influences policies. Pia Fredriksson from Aarhus University in Denmark runs the EU-funded project Policy Influence of Indicators, or POINT for short. One of their key findings has been the importance of involving the users, the stakeholders, in the understanding and even creation of indicators. All indicators do not necessarily have to be understood by the general public because they are not meant for the general public. Some are. The ones coming out into the media and say something which everybody needs to understand. But I think a lot of the indicators need to be understood by a more narrow group of stakeholders, especially, of course, the politicians because they're policymakers, but also, of course, the NGOs and the associations whom are really engaged in entering into policy processes. And I think the important thing is that they should be both understanding the indicators and also involved in indicator production. So how might POINT help stakeholders to understand indicators more fully or make better use of them, maybe? The main issue is that necessity to involve stakeholders at an early stage of policy making. And to take an example, I can mention one study of policy on aquatic environment in Denmark, where there was an involvement of many types of stakeholders in the policy negotiation process. It could be like environmental NGOs, it could be farmer associations, it would of course be government officials. 
and they sat around a table and tried to find out what are the main measures in order to reduce nitrogen emissions from agricultural production. And a kind of a consensus have arrived in this very broad group, actually, that the type of targets and the type of measures they kind of agree about. Of course, they don't agree about the level of strength of targets because they will never agree about that, I suppose. But I think having a general idea of how things are related to each other is very important for attaching indicators to these issues afterwards to follow the policies. And here we have the nub of the indicator issue, people. People develop indicators for people to use. The problem seems to be that people like you and I rarely seem conscious of the power and influence of indicators, or what they're doing to our world. These aren't just things that apply to some kind of distant, technocratic bureaucracy that sits over in Brussels. I mean, these things are here now. These things are right next to you. You consume indicators every day. You are bombarded with indicators every day. Whether you think it or not, you are. The Open University. Measuring the immeasurable featured Dr. Simon Bell from The Open University. For more information on systems thinking, go to www.open2.net/systems.